It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law. Some complicated international law issues here. What kind of docket is Chief Justice Roberts facing? Interviews with prominent attorneys and Bloomberg legal experts. Joining me is Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Neil Devins, a professor at William & Mary Law School. And analysis of important legal issues, cases, and headlines. Is this essentially the Fifth Circuit haunting? He has presided over a so-called hot bench at the Supreme Court. Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Greg Store. We're in for June Grasso. Coming up on the show, the Supreme Court prepares to consider scaling back the reach of the Clean Water Act. But first, in a new court filing, the Justice Department says a few of the documents it seized from Donald Trump's home may be covered by attorney-client privilege. With us to discuss the filing and what's next in the Mar-a-Lago search saga is Bloomberg News reporter Zoe Tillman. Zoe, thanks for being here. Tell us about this court filing, Zoe. What do we learn today? You know, we learned a couple of key things, the first being that uh, investigators are quite far along in going through the documents that were seized uh, to the point that they could tell a judge in Florida that their privilege team had gone through the documents that were seized, had identified that some were potentially attorney-client privilege material, and that they were already going through the process that they had previously laid out for what to do with that information. It was a strong suggestion to the judge, perhaps, that this is all moot and far too late in the game to bring in someone now to to unring the bell of giving investigators access to these documents. So putting aside the special master issue, uh, what's the normal procedure that the DOJ goes through when dealing with privileged documents like this? Yeah, so it's pretty common for uh, a federal investigation, especially one like this, to have what's known as a taint team or a filter team or a privilege team, which is a collection of usually FBI agents and prosecutors who are not the lead prosecutors and case agents in an investigation. And the purpose of that is so that the folks who are ultimately prosecuting the case, they don't see something that could get them disqualified uh, or knocked out of the investigation at some later critical phase or, I think, worst case scenario for the Justice Department, jeopardize the entire integrity of the investigation. What's less clear here is uh, this the concept of executive privilege and whether that type of privilege 
is something that the Justice Department could or should filter for as they're going through these documents. That's not typically what a taint team would be looking for. So that's a big question mark. And the Justice Department did not address that issue, which Trump has raised in the filing today. So what about the documents that are clearly not privileged, um, which may be significant? We don't really know how much we're talking about here. Um, is there any argument that's even on the table that uh, that, that former President Trump might be able to get those documents back? There's a little precedent for this. Um, early on, Trump had complained uh, that they had taken his some of his passports, and those were returned. I think that's an example of what is, uh, you know, generally what is supposed to happen, where if something gets caught up in a seizure that they don't have legal authority to take, they will give it back. Uh, and that appears to have happened here. You know, Trump has not suggested there are any other specific categories of documents that he should have back for some other reason besides privilege. Um, and the legal argument for that, I think, would be a bit murky, you know, at the point that there's no contest to the legality of the search warrant and the seizure itself. You know, at that point, those documents have been seized pursuant to that authority. So privilege is really one of the few carve outs to their ability to use what they took under the the umbrella of categories that they a judge gave them the green light to take. And so what, if anything, do we know about how much classified information was seized by the Justice Department on August 8th at Mar-a-Lago? Yeah, so we don't know a whole lot about the substance. We know that there were, uh, I think it was roughly 20 boxes, and within those, 11 sets of classified materials with different markings indicating uh, levels of classified information. Um, and so, you know, it... We don't have much more than that. They don't have uh, more specific markings that we've been made aware of, sort of similar, uh, not quite similar to what we've learned about documents that were seized in January and returned to the National Archives from Mar-a-Lago, where there's Justice Department revealed that some of those had markings related to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act or uh, markings related to intelligence from human sources. You know, we got a bit more detail about the level of sensitivity of some of those documents. We don't have that yet for the August 8th collection. Remind us what potential criminal charges could grow out of these documents. Yeah, I think what's important to remember is that the charges that the Justice Department cited are not specific to classified information. They have to do with generally mishandling government records, information related to national defense, which can be uh, an even broader category of information. It's not just about what happened to information that's classified. It's about the handling of sensitive government records. And then finally, obstruction, you know, whether there was evidence of obstructing an investigation, which is separate and apart from the question of, of the documents and how they were handled at the beginning. So this is all happening at the same time that the Justice Department is also pursuing a grand jury investigation centering on Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election result. Is there any reason to think that one of those two investigations is going to come before the other? You know, I think that in greenlighting the the seeking of a search warrant for the home of a former president, the attorney general has, you know, put this investigation at the front of the queue in terms of uh, public awareness and the public consciousness and the sense of urgency that they seem to feel around this investigation, whether one results in charges before the other or whether anything results in charges ever remains to be seen. But I think they've conveyed more of a sense of urgency now around these records uh, as opposed to the January 6th investigation. 
That's Bloomberg News reporter Zoe Tillman. Zoe, thanks for joining us. You're listening to Bloomberg Law. Up next, property rights advocates are hoping the Supreme Court will put new limits on the Clean Water Act. I'm Greg Store, And I'm Kimberly Robinson. This is Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Greg Storr. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. We're in for June Grosso. We turn away from Florida now and on to Idaho, which is the center of a water dispute that the U.S. Supreme Court is set to hear in October. Joining us is Georgetown Law Professor William Busby, who wrote a front of the court brief in support of the EPA here. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm pleased to join you. So, William, this case stretches all the way back to 2008 and is actually on its second trip to the high court. What is it that the plaintiff, the the Sackett family, is fighting about? Um, This case focuses on this question of where federal power begins and ends to protect what are called waters of the United States. And in particular, um, our lands that are wetlands or alleged to be wetlands, can they be protected by the federal government under the Clean Water Act? the Sacketts, the homeowners here, property owners, they argue the federal government has no power to protect their property from filling, uh, and EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers, uh, they view this property as a wetland subject to federal jurisdiction and then thus subject to restrictions on, on polluting into it or filling it. And tell us just a little bit about their property they are ne- they're in northern idaho and they're near a lake but not right on it is that right yes um they are near the lake uh what one thing that complicates it is they are essentially on a map which is part of the record of the case shows their property to be essentially in a whole area that is clearly mapped as wetlands and that are kind of continuously transitioning to connections with the lake uh, but their property, the Sackett's property, actually has a road in one area and some houses in the other. And so their story is that their land lacks the connection to this large lake, uh, which most people agree is subject to federal jurisdiction. And they argue that because it's essentially cut off, it should not be protected. 
the federal government says no. Uh, that this is clearly a wetland when you look at the nature of it, the wetness of it, what it would be but for uh, this road and these houses, that this is a protectable wetland. And so let's step back a little bit. Uh, why does the definition of waters of the United States matter? What is it that it allows the EPA to do? Um, well, first, it's important. This is the EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers. They they divide jurisdiction under the Clean Water Act. And going back to uh, basically the early 1970s version of the Clean Water Act, what is a water of the United States is what is protectable by the federal government from all types of pollution. Uh, and so the question of whether something is a protected water um, is absolutely the heart and core of the Clean Water Act. So, for example, if an industrial polluter right now is discharging pollution into something that's debatable, if it is a water, it has to have a permit, or if it's filling, it has certain restrictions on filling at all. If it's not federally protected, then the only protections would be if a state has on its own decided to protect that, uh, that land or that water. So there's a very important precedent uh, governing the Clean Water Act from 2006. Uh, it turns out Kimberly and I disagree how to pronounce it, so we'll let you tell us what the correct pronunciation is. <laughs> Can you do that and also tell us why that case is so important? What, what did or did not the Supreme Court decide in that case? Sure. Uh, well, to, to add confusion on confusion, the way I've always heard, I've not met the people at issue in that earlier case, but everyone refers to it as Rapanos. So, so I will refer to it as Rapanos, but that said, I've not met the Rapanos family, so I can't guarantee that. Um, okay, I, I, and, I, I won't. I won't tell anybody who was right. <laughs> uh, and so, the Rapanos case is the last major Supreme Court case that addressed this question, uh, and uh, and in that case, uh, what happened ended up being very confusing because. In the end, uh, also a case about whether some waters or lands that were kind of at the border, uh, whether they were protected, the court splintered in several ways. So there was no single majority opinion. Um, and so there was what's called a plurality opinion that only four justices joined. That was written by Justice Scalia. Then there was an important opinion by Justice Kennedy, but which four dissenters mostly agreed with, um, uh, and then there was dissenting opinions. And so there was no single opinion that a clear majority agreed with, but if you analyze it, there were certain agreements on certain issues. So um, it kind of, in the cases and before agencies, it actually had sorted out pretty well how to make sense of it when you look at certain issues. Okay, this is where a majority stood, but it definitely is a confusing case that professors and students and certainly those out in the real world uh, have puzzled over uh, since that time. Now, if I'm correct, the lower court here applied a test uh, that was close to the one that Justice Kennedy had written uh, just for himself. And it, it, if that's right, can you tell us what that allowed the EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers to do? Sure. Um, but actually, so this is important, is that Justice Kennedy wrote an opinion that, that it was his own name, but most of that opinion the dissenters uh, explicitly agreed with, and Justice Kennedy, in his opinion, agreed with most of what the dissenters said. So in looking at Supreme Court law, you often look at 
where do people agree and disagree. And so the part of the reason the Kennedy opinion, which does this thing called the significant nexus test, the reason it was so important is it seemed to be the kind of common ground that most of the justices agreed with. Um, and then you asked, you know, what does it do? What this, what that opinion said was when you decide whether a disputed water is protected by the federal government, you look to see if it has a significant nexus to what is clearly a navigable, such as like ships and barges. Is it clearly uh, have a significant nexus to kind of large, indisputable jurisdictional waters? Um, And that's important because it was a kind of a functional test. It just looked to see how does it connect, what does it do? And so it was quite consistent with the Clean Water Act, uh, which is overwhelmingly focused on protecting waters for their functions and to make sure they're safe for drinking and recreation and biological integrity. So and that was the test he formulated, but it was consistent with longstanding regulations in the statute. And so since 2006, Justice Kennedy's test has been the main test people have applied in deciding if something is protected. You're listening to Bloomberg Law. Coming up, we'll continue our conversation with Georgetown Law Professor William Busby, who wrote a friend of the court brief, in support of the EPA in a major Clean Water Act case. I'm Greg Storr. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Greg Storr. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. We're in for June Grosso. We're chatting with Georgetown Law Professor William Busby about the latest environmental case that the U.S. Supreme Court will consider in October. And what do the Sacketts say should be the test instead of that significant nexus test? They basically want to completely discard the uh, Kennedy test. Um, they, what they prefer, and they've come up really on their own, is a test that is kind of like Justice Scalia's opinion that was called the plurality that four justices agreed with. But they even go further. They kind of want to say, as, as best as I can understand it, you only protect waters that are sort of being used as channels of interstate commerce um, and that have a permanent surface connection uh, and continuously flow. Um, and so that's kind of what Scalia said and what they have sort of embellished and that Sackets have embellished and maybe further strengthened or maybe I'd say weakened. Um, the problem with that test is much of the country would no longer be subject to federal protection if that test were adopted. Uh, if you look at the West and the Southwest, or you look also in the Southeast in areas where there are levees on rivers and the like, uh, the test that they prefer would render what are, most people would clearly say are waters no longer protected by federal law. Hmm. And so the, the United States and my clients, 167 members of Congress, um, argue against that test, saying it's just not consistent with the Clean Water Act, which is you protect waters for their criteria, for their you know high-quality water criteria, and for their functions. Um, and, uh, and so this test that the, the Sacketts want, we argue, is just not consistent with the statute. So you filed an amicus brief on behalf of 167 members of Congress. Tell us why they decided to weigh in on this case. Um, 
members of Congress have viewed, and scientists and environmentalists, and frankly, much of the world uh, views our nation's Clean Water Act as one of its signature successes. Um, the Clean Water Act has been very strong and really a bipartisan project going back to 1970s. And, uh, and so the goal of our clients, the 167 members of Congress, was to basically make sure the Clean Water Act is not weakened. Uh, and the Clean Water Act has a – the statute is very clear with its language. It's about don't degrade waters, protect fish, shellfish biological integrity, ecosystem uh, diversity, recreation, economic values. This is all in the statute. And so the members of Congress really wanted to put before the Supreme Court, this is what the statute says. Um, and, uh, and this court uh, is in, in an interesting position. It claims the conservatives on the Supreme Court, I think, claim that they are textualists. Um, that is, they would be governed by what statutes say. And if they really are serious, the statute answers the questions in this case, uh, and it would protect these waters. But there's a strong push to get these justices to weaken the Clean Water Act, to kind of look away from the language and actually just sort of reach an outcome that weakens the statute. And so uh, our effort in our brief and the reason uh, 167 members of Congress joined it was trying to protect the Clean Water Act and its longtime successes. In your brief, you say the administration of Donald J. Trump is the only administration to have sought a major weakening of the Clean Water Act. What are you talking about there, and how did it work out for the Trump administration? And so, so first, that's just a, a descript, accurate description, that even going back to 2006, the uh, earlier case we talked about called Rapanos, the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration, was uh, aligned with the environmental interest in trying to protect the Clean Water Act. Um, the Trump administration uh, very quickly tried to roll back protections uh, through several regulations and then also in briefs in the courts, um, and they did not meet with success. Um, uh, people looked at their regulations uh, or their proposed change in regulations and said they violated what the statute said. Um, and so, uh, so now it's gone to the Supreme Court, and the uh, question is, will the current reconfigured court uh, cut back on the Clean Water Act or go with what has been the view for about 50 years of the reach of the statute? Well, thank you very much. Uh, that was William Busby, Georgetown Law Professor, uh, talking about Sackett versus EPA, which is going to be heard by the Supreme Court in October. You're listening to Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Greg Storr. We're in for June Grasso. This is Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY.
Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Greg Storr. We're in for June Grosso. The Supreme Court's Dobbs decision is changing the nation's abortion landscape. But just how quickly is it happening? With us to discuss that is Elizabeth Nash, who follows state abortion policy at the Guttmacher Institute, a research organization that supports reproductive rights. Elizabeth, thanks for being on with us. Um, Let's start with the overarching question. As we sit here right now, in how many states are uh, all or virtually all abortions banned? So right now we're looking at 11 states where there are near total abortion bans. So those are abortion bans that may have some exceptions like life for life endangerment, perhaps serious physical health conditions, rape or incest or fatal fetal anomaly, right? So that's the first 11 states. And then there are another two states that have bans in effect at six weeks. And then you have Florida at 15 weeks and North Carolina at 20 weeks and then the rest of the states. So we're really looking at a large number of women who are living in states without abortion access. If you look at those 11 states alone, that's almost 16 million women of reproductive age. And then can you tell us, looking forward, how many states are there where abortion is on the brink of being banned? Right. So we also are looking at states where there may be a special session upcoming, like in South Carolina, The legislature this summer, the the House committees and Senate committees have been discussing an abortion ban, and they're about to go into special session to pass it. And then there are states that had adopted abortion bans, you know, maybe last year, the year before, even years before that, where they're blocked in the courts. And so there are states like Utah and Wyoming where abortion bans are not in effect because of court action. So we're really looking at a number of states where we may be seeing more action around abortion bans in the coming months. And if we were looking at a map, um, we're, we're a, an audio medium here, but if we were looking at a map, where would we see most of the states that you're talking about? Right. So, yeah. So <coughs> pretend you have this map in front of you and we're really looking at the south the Plains, the Midwest. So if we're really looking at basically from North Dakota over to Idaho, down to Texas, over to Georgia, and up back through Ohio, that is really the landscape what we're looking at. And what that means is that for these regions, as states are, you know, have abortion bans in effect, that means that people have to travel much longer distances in order to access care in another state, right? It's not like they're just, and this is already a huge burden to try to travel across state lines, but the added burden is traveling multiple states. So if you think about Louisiana, Louisiana, you're 
probably going to go to Illinois. And that's well over a thousand miles round trip for somebody going from Louisiana to Illinois for an abortion, right? And that is a very hard trip to make, right? You're leaving your um, your support network. You're, you may have a child. 60% of abortion patients have had a child. 75% of abortion patients are low income. So you're talking about a really difficult and burdensome journey financially and emotionally for somebody to travel. And then you, I think you describe them as near total bans. I'm wondering what kinds of exceptions are there? Do we see many of these states have in place exceptions for rape and incest, or, uh, or is it really just for the health and safety of the mother? So really what we've seen in all 11 states, there's an exception for life endangerment. Um, that That's in every single one of them. And then a smaller subset have exceptions for rape and incest or fatal fetal anomaly or serious physical health conditions. And you really do not see the rape and incest exceptions or the fatal fetal anomaly exceptions very often. Those exceptions people think are more or more often, you know, happen more often than actually do. So if we're, you know, looking at it's it's really just a couple of these states that have those exceptions. Even though they get debated in public and in state legislatures, they don't often get added into these bills. So where are the biggest court fights, legal fights that you're watching right now? There have been a couple at least over uh, whether federal, federal law requires uh, certain health exceptions in, in, in abortion laws. Right. So you're pinpointing the Idaho and the Texas cases where the Department of Justice has sued, arguing that EMTALA applies to abortion bans because the exceptions for life and health in these states was just simply insufficient. And in Texas, what we've seen so far is that the courts have sided with the state and and in Idaho, the courts have sided with the Department of Justice. And so in Idaho, uh, per, um, if abortion is going to be provided under an exception, you know, the health exception has to follow EMTALA, meaning that, you know, there's a, a condition that requires treatment um, and because, you know, transferring that patient may be deleterious to that person's um, medical status. Um in other states, we are seeing, you know, court cases in state court um, against their trigger bans. And, you know, cases are using their state constitutions, which we really haven't seen much of over the past 50 years because we had these federal abortion rights. So places like in Utah and Wyoming, their uh, state constitutions are being tested now to see if they support abortion rights. And so I'm wondering if you see any of these cases that are currently pending making their way up to the Supreme Court, maybe around midterms, to keep kind of abortion in the spotlight. Um, do you think any of them will be moving that quickly, or, or is the Supreme Court out of abortion for a little bit? Well, I think the, the U.S. Supreme Court is probably not going to be weighing in on abortion over the next couple of months, at least. I'm not 
anticipating right now that there will be a case put before them. But we will be seeing, you know, what is happening in the state courts. And that has galvanized people in a way that I don't know if we, to- you know, people totally expected it. But as we are seeing what is happening in South Carolina with their legislature, or we're seeing how patients are denied care, or we're seeing how these court cases are moving through the system, it's almost a daily reminder of what happened in Dobbs. Before the Supreme Court ruled, um, the number that, that you and your organization used was 26, that there were 26 states that you that were either certain or likely to ban abortion without Roe. Is that number still still what you're thinking? It is still what we're thinking. You know, I think that we're looking at about half of the states probably at least going to try to ban abortion. And in many of these states, it feels like a certainty. Um, in part, we're going to have to see how some of these court cases shake out. Um, but also there are these states like South Carolina that are moving ahead for abortion bans. We're also anticipating Nebraska will move ahead with some sort of abortion ban when they return. One place where I think one state that we included in our count was Michigan. And Michigan may be the one state where we really think that it's going to go in an an opposite direction, um, where people have been motivated by Dobbs to um, act on abortion rights. And we're seeing that with the the governor and the attorney general pushing back against the pre-row ban, but also because there's a ballot initiative in November that would protect abortion rights in the state constitution. So Michigan's the one state where it's more of a question mark than the others. So in those states, the question will then become uh, an issue of interstate travel. Can people seeking abortions travel to other states? I'm wondering, have any states put into place laws designed to to prevent their residents from traveling elsewhere to get abortions? We haven't seen that yet. What we saw this year was language introduced in Missouri around banning out-of-state travel for an abortion. And that language was so striking and stunning that it really got a lot of attention and was, and as a result, never adopted into any of the bills that were moving. But it's simply introducing it and starting a conversation has changed the debate where states are now potentially looking at some way to limit travel. And they may not pass an explicit ban on travel, but what they might do is look to limit the scope of abortion funds and practical support organizations that help people get from their home to the abortion clinic in another state and back. Our thanks to Elizabeth Nash of the Guttmacher Institute talking about the state of abortion policy in the United States. That does it for this episode of Bloomberg Law. I'm Greg Storr. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. This is Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. 
Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.